You're listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 10. Once the war between the United States and the Philippine independence movement had devolved to its asymmetrical guerrilla phase, it was no longer waged at an equal degree of intensity throughout the islands. The Tagalog-speaking areas of central and southern Luzon Island, which was the largest island in the archipelago, were centers of violence and insurrecto activity. Other parts of the islands, as much as half, had no combat at all. And of course, there were other regions that fell somewhere on the spectrum of occasional and varying degrees of guerrilla activity in between these two extremes. Wherever they operated, the insurrectos demanded and collected taxes from the local populace to support the war effort. This was more popular in some areas than in others, but it's safe to say that at the beginning of the war, most civilians supported the independence movement. To make asymmetrical warfare successful, you need not defeat the enemy in battle. You simply need to make the war costly enough and long enough that political pressure back in the enemy's homeland starts to take its toll. And eventually the enemy figures out a way to withdraw with some shred of dignity. The Vietnam War was not the first time that large numbers of American troops were subject to jungle ambushes, sharpened bamboo stake booby traps, a surly native populace that hated them, and powerful anti-war sentiment back in America. Unfortunately for the insurrectos, the Treaty of Paris, which ended the war between Spain and the U.S., awarding the Philippines to the victorious Americans, was finally ratified by the United States Senate in April of 1900. That was a severe blow to the insurrectos. They had harbored hopes that the ratification vote would go their way and fail to pass. But it had not been the only potentially favorable political hope of Philippine independence. President Aguinaldo had yet another. The U.S. presidential election campaign was ramping up, with Election Day about six months away. It would be a rematch of the campaign of 1896, with William McKinley once more running against William Jennings Bryan. Now, Bryan was a remarkable character in American history, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a minute. Aguinaldo rooted for him because he was an avowed anti-imperialist, and if elected, would almost certainly withdraw American forces from the Philippines and give the islands their independence. Mr. Bryan had the support of Americans who disliked the Philippine War, like the Anti-Imperialist League. Aguinaldo, in an effort to make the war more unpopular in the U.S., ramped up guerrilla activity, trying to inflict as many casualties as possible on the Americans. Now, an interesting subplot to the story of this American election occurs as a result of the unfortunate and untimely death about six months before the election of a man you've never heard of, Garrett Hobart, McKinley's vice president. McKinley needed a new running mate. And guess who he picked? Can you guess? That's right! 
our old buddy, the newly self-designated war hero, Theodore Roosevelt. As most of you already know, and to Emilio Aguinaldo's soul-crushing disappointment, William McKinley won the election, and Teddy Roosevelt became his VP. News of this blow to Aguinaldo's desperate hopes had to have filtered out to the common people of the Philippines. This political thing can go both ways, you know. The Americans didn't seem ready to leave anytime soon. The tax the insurrectos collected from the people was probably growing less popular in places, and the number of Filipino people who grew to believe that life under American rule would probably be less onerous than under the Spaniards was growing. The Americans cultivated relationships with the wealthy and influential landowners. And there was plenty of ground-level interaction between American soldiers and Filipino civilians that was not violent. In much of the Philippines, the Americans were simply occupation troops, not really seeing much action, and the more culturally open-minded among them spent significant time hanging out with Filipino folks. As is often the case with occupation troops, I'm sure that even after only six months or so, there were a few budding romances or even marriages between American troops and charming young Filipinas. On the other side of the coin, the American military and American culture in general still largely retained its white supremacist characteristics. For example, it's an ancient military tradition to come up with hate-filled ethnic slurs for the enemy as a coping mechanism for the fact that you're going to have to kill human beings. Maybe lots of them. Demeaning terms like Japs, Krauts, Gooks, and Hajis are only among some of the most recent terms used in this tradition. You see, you dehumanize the enemy for fear that your troops may hesitate to kill when it's needed. There must have been intense pressure to quickly come up with an adequate ethnic slur for Filipinos. They eventually did come up with one, but until then, they made do with the N-word. Yes. Thousands of American troops referred to Filipinos with the same term often used for African Americans. Then eventually, some creative genius came up with the more specific ethnic slur, flip. Now that word obviously sounds like a mispronunciation of Filipino, but the more creative haters insisted that it was actually an acronym for fucking little island person. So as always, it was a complicated mix of human agendas and screw-ups. The more enlightened Americans tried to get to know the Filipino people. The more hateful ones did their best to alienate them. And the Filipino people themselves tried their best to navigate this situation. Then the United States Supreme Court made a series of rulings called the Insular Cases. The court ruled that the Constitution did not need to extend to the inhabitants of overseas territories ruled by the United States. That America could rule over people without extending to them the rights guaranteed by the United States Constitution. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't play very well. Among certain segments back in the U.S., and definitely not in the Philippines. In any case, the insurrectos soldiered on, keeping their independence movement alive. The American government had replaced the commanding general in the Philippines, Elwell Otis, with Civil War hero Arthur MacArthur, whose son Douglas would go on to make even more Philippine and American history. MacArthur, commanding an expanded force of 70,000 men, which was two-thirds of the entire United States Army at that time, 
decided that the Americans had been much too lenient with the Filipinos. President McKinley had formed a commission of American civilian officials and sent them to the Philippines. The commission's job was to begin the work of shifting control from military to American civilian authority in those areas that had been pacified, and to streamline and reorganize Philippine institutional bureaucracies, which the Spanish had long neglected. That was a smart thing to do. It actually helped the Filipino people a lot, and it went a long way towards winning hearts and minds among them. Leading the commission was William Howard Taft, a huge 325-pound man who would one day be president, and then after that would go on to become the only person who had been president to then also serve as a justice on the Supreme Court, and the chief justice at that. Commissioner Taft and General MacArthur soon began to butt heads. MacArthur personally saw the results of combat between the Americans and the insurrectos. His view of the Filipino people was that they were warlike, savage, in need of pacification and domestication. Commissioner Taft personally saw little to no violence. He spent his time in the Philippines around rich landowners, who convinced him that the insurrectos were all outlaws and bandits, that they weren't political and had no loyalty to a cause, and were not typical of the people of the Philippines in general. Taft developed a real fondness for the Philippines and referred to its people in press dispatches as, quote, our little brown brothers, unquote, and was convinced that the majority of Filipinos welcomed American political control. The views of both of these important American leaders were overly simplistic. By the way, remember the losing candidate in the 1900 presidential election, William Jennings Bryan? Well, he would go on to run and lose again in 1908. He would also, in subsequent years, run for and win a seat in Congress, serve as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State, and finally gain the national spotlight once more, just before his death, when he ardently campaigned against the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution in public schools, finally serving as chief prosecutor in the trial of a Tennessee teacher named John Scopes, who had committed the cardinal sin of teaching evolutionary science in a state that had made it illegal to do so. That's right. In the 20th century, a man was put on trial for teaching science in the USA. The trial, history remembers it as the Scopes Monkey Trial, was later dramatized into a play, several television shows, and a few movies. The title of the play is Inherit the Wind, and it's the only stage play that I have ever acted in, about 50 years ago. Anyway, back to the war. As I mentioned, some Americans began to feel kindly and even sympathetic towards the Filipinos. One in particular, a corporal in the Buffalo Soldiers of the 24th Infantry named David Fagan, would join 15 other American soldiers, including five other African Americans, in defecting to the Filipino side of the war. Fagan was a son of slaves from Tampa, Florida. Do you remember the story I told several episodes back about the Buffalo Soldiers' experiences there while waiting to be shipped to Cuba? Well, young David was there to see them march into town. Imagine what it was like to grow up a young black man in the late 1800s in Jim Crow, Florida. When the Buffalo soldiers marched into town, the sight of thousands of African-American men moving through the world with the proud bearing of soldiers had a profound effect on young David. To him, it was like seeing heroic figures from a childhood story. 
He wanted to be like them. He quickly enlisted in the U.S. Army and served as a nurse in the Yellow Fever Ward in Cuba and was then shipped to the Philippines as a member of the 24th Infantry. Once his duties there began, he quickly grew to despise his commanding officer, a racist white lieutenant named Alfred Moss. Now, Fagan must have shown defiance in a way that enraged Lieutenant Moss, and the Buffalo soldier paid the price, forfeiting wages and spending 30 days in chains at hard labor. In addition, his conscience was plagued by what he perceived as the unjust nature of the American war in the Philippines. Eventually, Fagan gave in to these feelings and decided to switch sides. He was secretly conducted on horseback behind Filipino lines. In the subsequent months, he served the Philippine independence movement well, using his U.S. Army training to do what he could to assist in raids and ambushes. He quickly worked his way up through the insurrecto ranks until he led his own force, holding the rank of captain, although his men referred to him as General Fagan. American General Frederick Funston, about whom we will hear more later, put a $600 bounty on David Fagan's head. Now, the powers that be in the American military didn't want the embarrassing story of a renegade soldier to get out. They censored the Filipino press for the better part of a year. But eventually, word indeed did leak out. An American culture and press, already strongly influenced by racism, seized on the story of Corporal Fagan as a convenient focus for hatred, depicting him not only as a traitor, but as a bloodthirsty psychopath who brutally executed prisoners. A different story was told by a Buffalo soldier named George Jackson and his white lieutenant, Frederick Altstetter, both of whom found themselves prisoners of General Fagan. They would both later attest that he treated them well, although Altstetter did complain that the renegade general had taken his West Point ring from him. One day, a Tagalog hunter appeared in General Funston's headquarters with a badly decomposed human head and a West Point ring, hoping to claim the bounty. Now, accounts differ as to whether this really was David Fagan's head. Many among the former insurrectos claimed that he had survived the war and took a Filipino wife, living peacefully there to the end of his days. In any case, I find the story of David Fagan fascinating. We seldom rationally depict such figures in history. The tendency is to either romanticize or demonize, to turn them into either heroic figures nobly fighting oppression or to portray them as foul traitors, devoid of honor and morals, utterly evil and treacherous. Now, I can try to understand the choices Mr. Fagan made. At the same time, I can also admire the Buffalo soldiers who were tempted to follow his path, but chose to remain behind with their comrades, keenly aware that the eyes of white America were fixed on them, determined to uphold the proud and growing tradition of martial excellence and honor that the Buffalo soldiers were building. I am not qualified to judge Mr. Fagan one way or the other. I don't have the knowledge and life experience. I never served in the military. I didn't grow up the child of slaves. All I can say is that his was a very human story. And of course, as I said, the vast majority of Buffalo soldiers did as they had always done and served bravely and with distinction in the Philippines. And I'll tell you more of that story next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of The Martial Brain at my website, rpmartialarts.com.
I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. The Marshall Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Marshall Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.